Good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. It's good to see you all. You know, it has been an incredible year, incredible in that who could believe the kind of year we've had, but we find ourselves here now in this not so new, but new year, and we, and we have an opportunity to do what we couldn't do a year ago. That is, be together on Resurrection Sunday to celebrate the fact that our Lord is risen. And he is risen. Amen. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and our fellowship. And we're reminded to pray for those who are sick and those who are quarantining and those who are just unable to be with us today. And we recognize there are many who would like to be with us today, but they're out of consideration for us. They're just staying home, to be sure. And Lord, we know that so many of us have had to deal with so many challenges this last year. And so as we open your word today and as we study in the book of Acts and we, we listen to Peter's sermon on the resurrection, we ask that you would just instill our hearts with a fresh understanding of the truth of your resurrection, that we would know in our hearts that it isn't just a day we celebrate every year, get dressed up, Easter baskets, dinners, all that kind of thing, but rather an opportunity for us to celebrate the empty tomb. Not just what you did on the cross, but what you accomplished in being victorious over the grave. That you promised and fulfilled that promise that you promised new life for those of us who put our faith in you, Lord. We want to be reminded of that promise today. We want it to be instilled in our hearts, and we want to respond appropriately to the gospel message in our hearts today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in a wonderful place in God's Word today. We just last week looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, We looked at verses 1 through 21, and Peter has already explained what was going on, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and all that was prophesied to have taken place by the prophet Joel. But as I mentioned last week, all of that was just to get the attention of those who were gathered to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. It's what happens next that is really important. And it's as Peter now stands up and begins to share the gospel that we understand the true power of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon us. It isn't just that he comes upon us to, to anoint us so that we can do wonderful things and have signs and wonders in our lives and healings. No, he anoints us for power, that power being given to us so that we can share the gospel. So we can preach the truth of the gospel message to those that need to hear it. And that's exactly what Peter does and he does it wonderfully. I want us to look at the first few verses here in this section in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter is now beginning his sermon. In earnest, he's really beginning the sermon, the gospel message. When he says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. And As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, 
put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The wonderful truth of the resurrection preached by Peter the Apostle, having just been filled with the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, he now begins to quote scripture, he now begins to speak the gospel message with eloquence, with effectiveness, and with power. And that's what happens when God gets hold of us, when he fills us with his spirit and gives us the gifts we need to do this very important work, this essential work. He's testifying to all of those that had gathered that Jesus of Nazareth was alive, amen? He was alive and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's the message. That's the message. Now, what's wonderful for them, for Peter, giving this message at this time, is that they had just seen the risen Christ ascend into heaven ten days earlier. And here they are on Pentecost, and they're celebrating this Jewish feast, and the Holy Spirit comes down, anoints the believers, the 120 believers who are gathered, giving them supernatural gifts and signs and wonders just to get the attention of those who are gathered so that Peter can, in Aramaic, share the gospel. Peter testified that Jesus of Nazareth was a man sent by God. No one can say that. You could say, well, John the Baptist was sent by God. Yes, he was sent by God in the sense that he was commissioned and sent by God to do a ministry. But Jesus, the Son of God, was sent by God the Father from heaven to earth. There's a very different type of sent in that word being used there. He was a man sent by God. God had proved this to be true. Now, how do we know that Jesus was and is a man sent by God? How do we know that? Peter tells us it was through the miracles, the wonders, and the signs that he performed. No one did what he did. Now, there were prophets in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, that performed signs and wonders, but Jesus was of a magnitude so much greater than anyone who ever lived, calming the storm raising the dead, healing every single person he ever touched. Think about this. This man, they knew this man for three and a half years. They saw this man. They were, many Jews were jealous, but they were jealous because what he did was real. They tried to explain it away. Some said it was because of the devil that he was able to do these things. Some, some said that, that, okay, he's, he's a blasphemer. But then they couldn't explain, well, why is he able to do the wonderful works of God? There was a lot of confusion because they liked what he was doing, but they didn't like who he was or what he said or how he challenged them. So they had witnessed these things. They, they certainly knew that this was true. But remember, there are only 120 believers at this point. So all of these Jews that are gathered there are not believers. And they need to hear the gospel message, but they've seen this this experience of the Holy Spirit. They've heard the 120 believers speaking in their own languages and it's gotten their attention. And now Peter begins to preach the gospel, reminding those in the crowd that they were responsible for Jesus's crucifixion. Now, it's amazing today in this day of political correctness how careful we are about saying things. We're often not wanting to offend someone so we wouldn't lead with, you crucified him. We wouldn't lead with that. But he did. 
He said, this man was handed over to you by God's said purpose and foreknowledge, that is, God was in control. But he said, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He's putting the blame squarely on those individuals who were there. And you can imagine their response might have been negative. It, it, it might have been something other than being open-minded. People don't like being criticized. People don't like being uh, accused, even rightfully, of doing something wrong. And, and, and that's exactly what he's doing. Now, why is that important? Because I think today, you and I, we need to understand we also put him on that cross. Now, we weren't there making the decision. We didn't yell in the crowd, crucify, crucify. But your sins, my sins, our sins are what put him on the cross. We didn't hand him over to the Romans. We didn't make the decision like the Jews to put him to death. But we are culpable. We are responsible for why Christ had to die. I think that's what breaks our hearts when we consider Good Friday, the crucifixion, the Passion Week is that ultimately we know we're responsible for all of that. I think that's what really cuts you to the heart. You understand, that didn't have to happen. But it happened because of his great love for us. And our need demanded that he die and be brutally tortured for our sins and trespasses. See, I think there's an important element in sharing the gospel that is often left out. It is the responsibility of man. That is, the sinfulness of man. Uh, we're loath to mention that to people anymore, to tell them that the, you know, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. You are in need of a Savior. You can't say, you need Jesus, and then, well, why do I need Jesus? Oh, because everybody needs Jesus. No, you've got to go there. You need Jesus because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And if you don't come to Jesus, you'll die in your trespasses and in your sins, and you'll be separated from God for all eternity. That is hell. And you and I, we are sinners. The first step of the gospel message, and maybe you'll get the chance to share this this week, maybe even today, with your family, with friends, co-workers, who knows. The first thing to establish in a loving but direct way is that you and I, we are sinners in need of saving. And if someone says, well, I'm not a sinner, you really can't help them. This crowd needed to acknowledge that they were responsible for the death of Christ. You and I, we need to understand we are responsible for his death. He died because of us. Because of God's great love for us. But understand something, just so you don't think that God wasn't in control the whole time. God had allowed Jesus to be arrested by their leaders as it was his predetermined purpose, Peter says it. It was God's purpose. It's not as if what you did wasn't God's purpose. It doesn't let you off the hook, but God's purpose was that this should happen. But they had chosen to hand him over to the wicked Romans in order to have him crucified. They made that decision. Today we're talking about making decisions for Christ. We have all made bad decisions in our lives. And probably one of the worst decisions we can make is to sin, but we make it on a continual basis if we're honest with ourselves and everyone else. What you and I need to do, what we need to do is make the decision to confess our sins, to put our faith in Jesus, to repent of our sins by acknowledging we sin and asking God for forgiveness. And in doing so, we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. We can be purified and made right in his sight.
That's the gospel message. But do you, you understand how if you don't start with that, everything else that comes afterwards doesn't really have any impact? How can you talk about a message of salvation when you haven't made it clear what we're saved from and why we need saving? I think the church has been careful not to make too much of sin and repentance when, in fact, that's probably the message. By the way, why is repentance a bad message? Why is that bad news? I think it's great. Someone comes to you and says, you can ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. Why is that bad news? Oh, because you have to admit you're wrong? How is that bad news? It's good news. That's why we call it the gospel. That's what the word means. I want to point out that, (coughs) excuse me, when they were yelling for Jesus to be crucified, they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. They had taken responsibility for the death of Christ. They had said in Matthew 27, 25, they had actually said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Peter had to go there, and he did. And so the next thing that happens here is he testifies that God raised him from the dead. Now, here's why this is really good news. Jesus had to die because of your sins. And if that's all that happened, that we had to spend eternity knowing that we, we and our sins put Jesus to death, that would be an incredibly awful eternity. Where's Jesus? He's dead. Why? Your fault. Your fault. Well, where is he? He's dead. But he's risen. He's risen indeed. You see, that's what makes the good news just so good. Because now you realize, well, he had to die, and that's difficult news. But he rose again, which sort of mitigates the whole issue of him having to die. It's like, okay, but he died for my sins, but he rose again to give me newness of life. And I get to spend eternity with him. We all do. That's good news. God had raised him from the dead. I like the way he says it. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, let's think about why. God freed Jesus from the agony of death that all mankind experience. See, he freed him from everything we have to experience in this life. The stats are in 100% of all people die. We're all going to die at some point. But because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we'll all live if we put our faith in him. And that's really good news. See, the gospel message on Resurrection Sunday is a a feel-good message. They're not all feel-good messages, you know? Sometimes God convicts us of our sins in such a way that we go home and we're cut to the heart. Today, everyone should go home feeling like really excited and encouraged. The, The good news is he is risen. We have now something to truly celebrate in our faith, that Christ is risen indeed. And so it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. I like that. It was impossible for him to stay dead. There was never a time where he was going to stay dead. Why? He's the son of God, amen? He's the perfect man. He never sinned. He became sin for us. He who knew no sin. So when he died and gave up his life, and he gave up his life, no one took it from him, and he descended into the heart of the earth, into Hades, and for three days and nights was absent from the world of the living, and his spirit was in the place of the dead. Understand something. 
There was never a time where he didn't know that in three days and three nights, or three days and three nights later, he was going to be raised from the dead. There was a mission there. We'll talk about some of those things. I know on Wednesday evenings in Second Peter, when we get to Second Peter, we're in First Peter right now, we'll talk about some of these things. There was a ministry that Jesus had to accomplish in Hades for those three days, and it was to proclaim the gospel message to those that were waiting for him. Now, here's what happens. He begins, Peter, begins to share this wonderful truth. He's done. That is the gospel message, if you will. You're a sinner. Christ died on the cross for your sins. And he rose again on the third day to give you newness of life. And you need to put your faith in him. It's not really that complicated. But what Peter's going to do, because he's speaking to a number of Jews, he now begins to quote scripture. He begins to show them from the scriptures how David predicted that these things would happen. It was very important to the Jews, and should be to all of us, that the Bible predicted Jesus' suffering in explicit detail. Why is that important? Because Jesus said, I've told you these things in advance so that when they happen, you'll believe. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by reading something that was written 700 years earlier, 1,000 years earlier, 1,500 years earlier, and knowing it happened exactly how God said it was going to happen. At that point, you can say, this book is real, and everything in it important for me to understand and obey. Without the power of prophecy, how do you know that this is the word of God? Well, there are other things that make it clear it's the word of God. It's historical accuracy, all of the the, the wonderful testimonies, but probably nothing more then the issue of biblical prophecy can prove conclusively that this is the word of God. So so here's what Peter does. In verses 25 through 28, he quotes David. And he quotes from Psalms 16, verses 8 through 11, and he predicts David predicting the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay or corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, looking at that, that that just seems like David's just talking about things that happened in his life, but it's more than that. There's prophecy here because he's talking about the death of Christ. He's talking about the grave. He's talking about the Holy One who is the Messiah. And he's talking about paths of life and being in his joy or with joy in his presence. This is the understanding of what we're talking about, the gospel message from David, by the way, about a thousand years before Christ. Now, I admit that if I look at that, you might say, well, it may not be as as exacting as as I want it to be. Well, there are scriptures that are even more precise, but this one's important. He's quoting this verse to explain that Jesus was alive. And by the way, Peter, from here on in, when he quotes scripture, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, his quoting of scripture is positively inspired. Two weeks ago, we saw that not always the case before the Holy Spirit. But now that the Holy Spirit is upon him, when he quotes scripture, he's dead on. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is the one that enables us and empowers us to 
teach the Word of God, and to preach the gospel. Without him, we're guessing at best. David had learned to constantly seek the Lord for his guidance in all things. He learned that through trials. But David was certain of where he would spend eternity in the afterlife. He was certain. He never doubted that. And when he speaks, you will not abandon me to the grave, he knows that the day will come when Messiah, who would be his descendant, will come and deliver him from the grave, which is what happened when Christ descended into the heart of the earth. So this is all being talked about here. He had learned to constantly seek the Lord. He was certain of where he would spend eternity. His faith in eternal life immediately affected his earthly life. Is that true of you? Does your faith in eternal life affect your earthly life? It should, because if it doesn't, I would question your faith in eternal life. You see, a lot of us get so caught up in this earthly life that we forget that this is just the beginning of eternity. We're so focused on what's going on here and now, and we can't help it, that's how we are, that we forget, or in many cases forfeit, unfortunately, or at least sacrifice, what could be an even greater experience of eternity. Now, that happens because we're so focused on the present that we don't think about where we're going and what God has provided for us in eternity. But David was not like this. David is talking about eternity, and it's affected his earthly life. One of the ways you'll know that you do believe in eternal life is it will affect your earthly life. How you live, what you do, how you spend your time, what things you will do, what things you won't do, what relationships you'll get involved in what activities you'll refuse to be a part of. A lot of that goes to your understanding of eternal life, whether you actually believe it's real. It filled his heart with gladness and caused him to praise the Lord. He didn't have to be convinced to praise the Lord. You know, I remember one of the first ministries I got involved in was kids ministry, and it was many, many years ago, and they needed someone to play the guitar for the kids. And one thing you didn't have to do is convince the kids that it would be a good idea to stand up, jump around, and sing. They need no convincing. They were ready to do that. But sometimes, and uh, Pastor Russ can probably understand this, but uh, certainly not this morning, but sometimes you, you, know, you start a worship service and, and you kind of feel like, oh, I, I, got, I mean, I want to get everybody up jumping around, moving and singing, you know, like I got to convince everybody that this would be a good idea for us to sing this morning. Again, not this morning for sure. Not this week. We had some wonderful services. Wednesday night, we had our worship service, our soul shelter. Friday night, we had our Good Friday service. Lots of worship. I feel like I spent the week up here. But, you know, we really shouldn't have to convince people that it's a good idea to jump around and praise the Lord. David did that very thing. People criticized him for it, his own wife. Jumping around and praising the Lord was this guy's middle name. This is what he did. He needed no convincing to praise God. Why? Because he was so focused on eternity. He understood where he was going and how he would spend eternity. It put his body at rest, knowing his security in the Lord. It put him at rest. You know, we're always looking for peace. We're looking to just get rid of the stress, right? David had a stressful life. But I like what he says here. He says, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Hope of what? Death? No. Life. 
because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. That is, he's going to be raised and I'm going to be raised with him. Amen? Goes on to talk about life. You made known to me the paths of life. You, you will fill me with joy in your presence. This is his hope. You can see it. He's looking forward to the resurrection. These Jews are listening to this and they're thinking, oh yeah, I see what you're saying. David knew that this wasn't the end. David understood Messiah would be raised and he with him. And now they're hearing this and they're seeing the work of the Spirit and they're listening to Peter's inspired words and they're beginning to think maybe this thing is real. Maybe Christ has risen. Maybe he has. So, David's faith in eternal life not only affected his earthly life, it affected his, his view of earthly death. We've, we've had a, a lot of death this last year. By the way, the media is real good at spinning this. Unfortunately, because of this pandemic, many of us have had to face loved ones passing on or nearly passing on or being very sick. But even if the pandemic didn't happen, probably just as many people, maybe just as many people, would have died this last year of other things. Why do I say that? To depress you? No, just to let you know death is a part of life. And uh, I know many of you, uh, you, you know me as well, and you know, I've had to say goodbye to loved ones over this last year or two, and that, that's life. It's not one of the more pleasant aspects of life, but it's life. And David understood that. But his faith in eternal life is what immediately affected his view of earthly death. Not just earthly life, but earthly death. When he looked at death, he looked at it as an opportunity to move on to the next life. And if you as a Christian fear death, ask yourself, do I really believe in eternal life? You know, the other day I was thinking, I mean, you know, you get older, you think, someday I'm not going to be here. I think one of the things that that probably if you have people you love in your life are a little bit younger, um, you think, oh, well, you know, I want to see them grow up. I want to be around. You know, of course, I mean, that just makes sense. But keep in mind that when we pass on and we're all going to, we're going to go as believers in Christ, we're going to go into the presence of God and I don't think you're going to be there. Yeah, you know, this is okay and everything, but, you know, they were opening up that new mall down in the Meadowlands and <laughs> like that's ever going to happen. And I really missed out. You know, I, I was kind of looking forward to that. That new Marvel movie, eh, I, it never came out. I'm, nobody's going to go through their experience of eternity thinking, oh man, if I had just stayed a little while longer on earth. Nobody. Nobody. Yet we live like it's the worst thing that could happen. Listen, I don't have a death wish. But I'll tell you what, when the time comes, if my faith in Christ is real, then I have to step into eternity looking forward to what's next. And that's what David tells them. That's what Peter quotes. He no longer feared the eventuality of death in the grave. You know, I, I took a public speaking class many, many, many years ago. And they were looking at the fears that people have. And believe it or not, the fear of death was further down the list than the fear of public speaking. And the instructor said, which tells us that most people would rather die than have to get up in front of a room of people. Well, I think truthfully, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, 
Fear death because it's unknown. But it's not unknown. It wasn't unknown to David. It wasn't unknown to Christ. And he conquered it. And we are going to spend eternity in his presence. So none of this, oh, the worst thing that could happen is I die talk. If you go through the rest of your life as a Christian fearing death, you haven't truly considered the truth of the resurrection. No one wants to die. But brothers and sisters, we will all live in Christ. That's the gospel message. A wonderful message. It starts with repentance, but it ends with life eternal. It's a wonderful message. He no longer feared death. He knew the Lord would never abandon him. He knew that the Lord would resurrect him in eternity. He knew that his relationship with the Lord would secure his eternal inheritance. Because of that, he could write these words, inspired by the Spirit. David anticipated eternal blessings in the Lord's presence. He he knows that his relationship with the Lord is the path to eternal life. Your presence is fullness of joy. He knows that he will be filled with joy and pleasure when he enters the Lord's presence. No more pain, no more sorrow. Like that song, no more sorrow there. We are going to see the king. It's been a sorrowful year. Because you see, we're still here. And we got to deal with all the death and the nonsense in this world. The craziness. But there's no more sorrow there. So don't talk to me about death being a bad thing for the Christian. It's an eventuality that leads to the ultimate experience of life in Christ. Well... David was also speaking prophetically about the resurrection of Christ when he wrote these things from his own perspective. This is the first of 21 references to Christ ascending to the Father's right hand in Scripture when David writes this. Peter quoted this psalm to testify to the resurrection of of Christ. And Paul also quoted this psalm to testify to the resurrection of Christ. So it's on good authority that this psalm is speaking about the resurrection of Christ. And then he goes on to explain it a little bit more. He quotes it, then he teaches it. Look at verses 29 through 31. He says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. People had visited his tomb, so they knew it was there. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, of the Christ, the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. By the way, that word witnesses, that is the, the key word of the book of Acts. You know, they call it the book of Acts, but the word Acts doesn't really show up. The word witnesses over and over again. It probably should have been called witnesses, because that's exactly what these men become. In Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But here what Peter says is, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear, referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in sharing these things, he just makes it abundantly clear how to interpret Psalm 16 as the resurrection, as a prediction of the resurrection, assuring those in the crowd, these verses didn't just speak about David. 
Don't make that mistake. They didn't just speak about David. They did, but they spoke about Christ. David had died. He was buried in in a tomb in Israel. David was a prophet who spoke of God's promise to send his descendant as Messiah. They knew that. And David was actually predicting that Messiah would be raised from the dead to everlasting life. There's no disputing that at this point. So now what do you do with that? As Jews, you've got your scripture saying, one of your most beloved prophets and kings, psalmist, David saying Christ would be raised to life. And, And you have this witness of the resurrection. People are starting to think, what? Maybe this thing is true. He is the son of David. Well, that's what Peter's doing. He's sharing the truth. And Peter testified that God had raised Jesus to life and that he and the other disciples had seen him. It's kind of hard to argue with a witness, isn't it? If it's a true witness. If it's a false witness, it's easy to break up their story. You know, police officers will take someone in that room with the metal table, you know, and they'll ask the same question over and over again and over and over again to try to get you to trip up. But if you're just saying what you saw, your story is going to remain consistent. You'll be a faithful witness. This happens in the court, too, when you go up on the stand and you say you're going to, you know, you make a a vow, you take an oath that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if you're telling the truth, it's very easy to witness to what you've seen. But when you've got to make it up, sooner or later, your story is going to fall apart. Remember when you, get, you used to get in trouble in school and they would separate you and your buddies? What happened? How that story fell apart very quickly. Well, you know, I think the truth of this is all of these men and women saw the risen Christ. That must have impacted those listening. They must have realized something had taken place. Peter testified that they had seen him. Peter testified that Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he explained that as God the Son, Jesus had now sent God the Holy Spirit, which they had just experienced in a miraculous way. He explained that as Jesus' disciples, they had now received the promised Holy Spirit. They could as well, but they were the first to receive it. This is what they were seeing and hearing as they were speaking in their native languages. And then Peter quotes another psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a prediction, again by David, a prediction of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because the next logical question, we don't think about it this way, but if you were in the crowd, okay, the logical question after, you know what, maybe he did rise from the dead, would be what? Where is he? If he was raised from the dead, where is he? Well, he goes into Psalm 110, verse 1. And in verses 34 through 35, we read this. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Going on in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They're convinced. What was it that convinced them? Well, the truth of the resurrection is a powerful truth. Even if you didn't witness it, they did. And then you have this miraculous anointing of the Spirit. You have the Spirit-inspired preaching of the Word of God. You have the power of prophecy from David a thousand years before these events took place. And you have the noticeable empowerment of the Spirit on Peter as he speaks. 
Have you ever been in a service where you just know what's being said is true? You don't want it to be, but you know it is. You're like looking around. You're afraid to even turn your neck because you like, you don't want anyone to think that it's really hitting your heart, but you know it is. And the reason it's hitting you is because God is speaking to you. It's not the pastor. It's not me. It's not Peter. It's God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to your heart. And I'll tell you what, if you're not convinced of the, of the, of the truth of, of, of God's word that he rose from the dead, then a message like this, listen, if this doesn't impact, I don't know what will. Now, this is coming from Peter, and Peter has made it clear, and he's quoting Psalm 110, but his quoting of this verse, again, positively inspired by God, to quote this verse to explain that Jesus is at the right hand of God. We actually looked at this in the summer when we were studying the Psalms. But he assured those in the crowd that these verses did not speak about David. I mean, how could they? David hadn't ascended into heaven, right? So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet. He's clearly not talking about David. So who is he talking about? That's Peter's point. David had not died, and, uh, or excuse me, David had died and had not ascended into heaven. David was a prophet who spoke of God's promise to Messiah. So what is he talking about? Well, David was actually revealing God's promise to Messiah that he would sit at his right hand. In other words, he refers to God the Father and God the Son in this same verse. Notice again, the Lord said to my Lord, and it's David, he's the third person, right? So the Lord, God, the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's interesting in the original language is there are two different words for Lord. The first is Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord, God, said to my Lord Adonai, which is the word we could use when we say the Lord Jesus Christ, Adonai. So God the Father says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The idea is the the ascension, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, predicted a thousand years before these things happened. Well, the Lord directs Messiah to sit at his righteous right hand until he conquers his enemies, and we're looking forward to that day. There's certainly plenty of enemies out there. There's no shortage of enemies to the cause of Christ, if you haven't noticed. The world has gone so wicked, it's not even worth mentioning this morning. It's so bad. The commercials themselves on television speak of the wickedness that's readily accepted in our culture. Things that, that would have never been even talked about 15, 20 years ago, thrown in our faces. Sin on such a level that I've never seen in my lifetime. Sodom and Gomorrah level sin, and yet the day is coming when he will rule and reign over this earth. As far as I'm concerned, the sooner the better. The right hand of the throne of God is the side of power and authority, and we're waiting for him to come in power and authority to rule and to reign. He's coming to judge the earth, to destroy his enemies. He's coming to rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years, and I'm just fine with that. By the way, Jesus quoted this very same verse to identify himself as Messiah to the Pharisees. So Peter's on good authority quoting it. In fact, the author of the the book of Hebrews quoted this verse to establish that Christ is superior to all creation, all of the angels and all created beings. So this verse truly does speak of Christ. 
Now, Peter assured those in the crowd that God has made Jesus, who they crucified, both Lord and Christ. Read it again. Therefore, all Israel, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, Adonai, and Christ. Mashiach or Christ. It's the same word, anointed one. They hear this now. With all that we've talked about, they hear this. They, they don't just listen. They hear it. And their response, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's a wonderful response. You know what I like about that? Those in the crowd were deeply convicted. They wanted to know how to respond to Peter's words. The people heard the truth. They reacted to the truth. They responded to the truth. That's why we have to preach the truth. Truth is in short supply today. Truth seems to be whatever you think it should be. But they responded to the Holy Spirit, and they did so without manipulation, coercion, or force, which is why I don't do that when I preach the gospel. I just preach the truth from God's word. Only God can cut you to the heart. Only you can choose to respond to the message of the truth. I just have to deliver. We just have to deliver the truth. What happens next is out of our hands, but it's in God's hands. Amen? Look what happens. This is pretty exciting. Verse 38, Peter replied, now notice, he leads with the word repent. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. See, I can't, Pray for someone to receive Christ who hasn't been called. God has to call you. And I pray he's calling some of you today who haven't responded yet. It says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Wow. He said he lived in a corrupt generation. It's really something. You just get disgusted after a while, right? How corrupt this generation is. But Peter called them to repent. And we can repent in this corrupt generation. We can save ourselves from this corrupt generation. He called them to repent of their sins, to be baptized. He called them to repent of their sins that they might be forgiven. That's why it's the good news. He called them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because some people don't like that Peter said, be baptized in Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, Peter. According to Matthew... We're supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So which is it? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, amen? He's one with the Father and the Spirit, so it doesn't matter. Too many people get worried about things like that. It doesn't contradict. God's Word never contradicts itself. Be baptized into Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Peter promised them, too, that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, as predicted by Joel. Remember, the gift of the Holy Spirit is displayed by uh, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Holy Spirit is displayed by the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the gift is the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the evidence of his work in and through our lives. The love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that God makes in our heart because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this promise was first to those Jews present on Pentecost and to their descendants, but now this promise is to 
all those Jews and Gentiles whom our Lord God will call. So has God called you? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we finish out this message. Has God called you? Peter continued to warn them with many other words. He pleaded with them to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to save themselves from the corruption of this generation. And I would do the same. What was the result? What happened? What did the Spirit accomplish as Peter, through the power of the Spirit, preached the gospel truth? Look at verse 41 with me as we close. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were, de- were added to their number that day. The church went from 120 believers filled with the Spirit to 3,120 filled with the Spirit. Amen? How did that happen? It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Peter. It was God. The Lord God called these individuals. This was God's doing. And it should be God's doing every time someone responds. Listen, those that accepted the gospel message of Peter as truth repented of their sins and were baptized. And that should always be the response to the gospel message. I find it interesting that Peter preached the new covenant on the day of Pentecost. The new covenant. Because Pentecost was a celebration of the old covenant. We talked about that back in Exodus. That Pentecost was the day that the old covenant was given. They celebrated the giving of the law. And yet, now Peter is preaching the fulfillment of that with the new covenant. By the way, on that day in the past, the very first Pentecost, that followed the very first Passover, 3,000 Israelites were put to death on Mount Sinai when the law was given because they broke the law. They were put to death by the Levites for disobeying God's law. Now, when the new covenant's given, the exact same number of people receive eternal life. 3,000 Jews are now added to the 120 believers that have been baptized by the Spirit, and they're given forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ through repentance. By the way, we talked about this last week. Pentecost was also called the Feast of the Harvest. It was open to both Jews and Gentiles. It was open to everyone. Not all perished on the first Pentecost, and not all were saved on this Pentecost. But my prayer is that this wonderful Easter Resurrection Sunday celebration as we consider the day of Pentecost, would be an opportunity for any one of us who have not yet said in their hearts that they believe the gospel truth. It would be an opportunity for them to repent of their sins, hopefully eventually be baptized, but to give their heart to Jesus Christ. That's the appropriate response to the gospel message. So will you save yourself from this corrupt generation by giving your heart to Jesus Christ. Will you accept Peter's message this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful message of Peter's that was given on the day of Pentecost that had such a wonderful response. And I pray for every heart here today that all of us who love you, that we would first of all recognize what it means to be saved. That we, like David, would not fear death, that we would look forward to eternal life that we would live our lives for you. But now I ask for every heart here today that has yet to say like this crowd did, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? I pray that every heart here that has yet to be given to you, Lord, would right now just be called by your spirit to surrender 
to ask that question, what shall we do, and to answer it by repenting of their sins, recognizing, Lord, that you died on the cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day. We celebrate that truth today. But the truth that the resurrection and the life is made available to each and every one of us as we put our faith in you. To as many as received him, to those that called on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. I pray that every person here would be saved by crying out and putting their faith in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. That they would become one of the newest members of the millions, not thousands, but millions and perhaps billions who have given their heart to you over the centuries. Lord, I ask that every person here would be saved by your will and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.